0: Would you turn to Mark 15? Mark 15, and as I have promised last message, we will look at that last sentence of verse 32. So Mark 15, verse 32, and that very last sentence says, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Now, immediately after this, what we need to look at exactly what happened is now to turn to Luke 23 and verses 39 to 43. I know we're kind of going flicking over the path, but I I promise you we're not going to flick too many pages today. We're going to be looking now at what happened immediately after. The thieves on the cross were insulting Jesus. Luke 23 and verses 39 to 43. So they were insulting, and now we read from verse 39 to 43. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling. Abuse at him, that's at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And verse 43 the music to our ears. He said to him, Truly I say to you, today. You shall be with me in paradise. And here we come to one of the most wonderful stories of salvation in the scripture. Here we come to the thief who stole away eternal life. What a joy. What amazement for this robber just a couple of hours before his last breath to be saved. It is always a joyful thing for any sinner to be forgiven. But to be at the brink of of death, at the fringe, one inch away of being cast into eternal hellfire, and then to be welcomed into eternal paradise, then what exceeding joy? What amazement can describe this celebration? This remorseful thief on the cross, he was as though running downward through the valley of death, and hell was waiting for him at the very bottom with the the mouth wide open to swallow him. Demons were cheering him on. But then the Lord came swiftly like an eagle and rescued him. This thief had as though his toes touching the finishing line of his miserable life. He hung on the cross with his feet dangling above the flames of hell. With every ugly, wicked crime he committed, it intensified the heat. It increased the flames. But yet. With one humble request. One mercy. One cry of mercy. and He mounted up. And the Lord snatched him up to the third heaven. He was like a twig that was plucked out of fire. This thief was a wicked, vile criminal. A top dog in evil. And yet. With one word of our Savior, and he was made whole, clean, as white as snow. If there is joy in heaven, when one sinner repents, brothers, then how much all the more there would be laughter and dancing and somersaults in heaven when a vile, wicked, filthy sinner as this would come to saving faith. This thief is a beautiful song that will forever sing the depth and the height of how merciful God is. Oh, how he was a possession of Satan, a slave to this fallen angel to do his will. But oh, our champion Jesus. How he conquered the devil and plundered his spoil. And made this thief forever to be his trophy of grace. The hero of our today's story is most definitely not this thief who repented and believed, though it is commended. The real hero, the victorious king, is our glorious savior, who as the scripture says is able to save to the uttermost those who will come to God. Through him may it be engraved in our minds. Jesus is mighty to save. Uh, Let us who believe meditate on the simplicity of the gospel. and Let this meditation turn into praises and worship to our Savior, who is the crown and the glory of this gospel. Is anyone disheartened by the indwelling sin in the flesh? Are you discouraged by the constant whispering and accusation of the devil who would constantly say to you, how can you call yourself a child of God and you sin such horrendous sins? You should run away from God in shame. May this message be a reminder to all of us that Jesus' blood speaks of eternal forgiveness. Even to the worst kind of sins. No matter the depth of sin you drown yourself in. If Jesus graciously accepted this fallen sinner, this thief on the cross, despite all his crimes, that in God's name, Why would he reject any of his children? And my dear friend, you who have gone way too far in sin and for too long and numerous times have rejected the call to come to Christ. May today be the day where you respond in faith. Friend, even now, way before I even finish the sermon, may the Lord grant you forgiveness this morning. May he speak unto your soul as he spoke to this thief on the cross. May you read this passage and that last sentence and apply the spirit of that verse into your own lives. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Let me be very upfront and very clear with you as I possibly can. How I desire, we all, men, brothers and sisters among us, desire the salvation of every unbeliever in this room. This is the agenda, the intention of this message this morning. Well, just as usual, the background, where we're at in this narrative, it's the Jesus' last day on earth. And, and um, this day was flooded with unspeakable sufferings, a barrage of ridicules and scorns, wave upon wave of mockery. We had seen Pontius Pilate sarcastically he wrote the inscription and hung it upon Jesus' head, saying, the king of the Jews. And this was meant to ridicule and mock Jesus. And yet the irony is that Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, he's the king of the world. And then we had the Roman soldiers who ridiculed Jesus by bowing down before him in pretense. And yet, the irony is that there is one day where they will bow down before him in actuality. Then we've seen the Jewish leaders and the crowd how they sneered and, and they scorned at him and they said to him, He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. And once again, the irony is. That he did save billions of lost souls precisely because and by not saving himself. His death was death on their behalf. He was their perfect substitute. And in the mockery continues on. And even today in this message, in his text in Mark 13 verse 32. Where it says, Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Now, insulting him. They were insulting him. This verb is imperfect mode, which means they were continually insulting him. Both thieves were. Continually reviling, spitting contempt at Jesus. Imagine this. Well, both thieves nailed to the cross. They they pulled their shoulders around and they leaned upon that cross piece where they were hung toward the middle cross. And then both started tag-teaming together and they started mocking and cursing and swearing at the Son of God. The audacity. Mark wants to show us the degree of the mockery. Even the most devilish criminals on the day when our Lord was crucified they all they themselves also thought that they were better than him, and they were looking down on him. Now, what did they say? We don't know exactly what they said, but the closest thing that we have is in Luke twenty-three verse thirty-nine, what well, we just read earlier, and I trust that you're 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 there, and if not. Uh, Please turn there because we're going to pick up the story from, from that point because this will help us to unpack what happened particularly to that thief who stole away eternal paradise. It says one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him. One of the criminals. So at one point, while both criminals were joining the wicked choir of mockery with their comrade, you know, you've got the crowd in one hand and you've got the Jews, the religious leaders on the other hand, and and they were enjoying their last moments of insulting the God-man. Handful of hours before they were about to give up their last breath, before they were about to be shot straight through to the judgment day, all of a sudden, one stops insulting. You don't hear his voice. Only one thief now was abusing Jesus and he was saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Certainly, he's not talking about spiritual salvation or eternal life. He's like any other carnal man. He's only interested in work and job and duty and all the physical needs to be met. That's all that he cares about. So he wants to be saved physically, just like all carnal men, all unbelieving wicked men only care about this life. But the other was defending Jesus now. In verse 40, it says, But the other answered and rebuking him. as rebuking the other thief. What happened? How come? How is it both were criminals that were hung besides Jesus? Both were mocking Jesus. How come all of a sudden now one repents? And the other remains lost. You know, like hearing a gospel message, even even in this kind of environment that we have, you have one person who hears a message and believes, and yet you have another who hears exactly the same message for weeks, months, and years. And rather than believing, his heart will grow harder. How come? Why is that? there's no answer that can be given other than the fact that God is sovereign. It's the providence of God. That's all that we can say. God is sovereign. He does what he wills with the sons of men. This ought to humble us. It ought to humble you if you have not come to a saving faith. You do not have the remote control of your salvation in your hands. How humble. You've got the crowd, the religious leaders, even the thief on the cross, their hearts were blinded by unbelief. And in God, hand picks this thief. He chooses him. He gives him light. He changes his heart and places faith deep into his soul. And all of a sudden, and for the first time of his life, His eyes are open. And then he shows the character traits of everyone, every person that comes to Jesus Christ for salvation. This is where really our message begins. It begins now. How is it that this man? came to be saved. Well, we've seen from God's perspective, it's all of God. From humans' perspective, how did he believe in Jesus? What does it mean to come to Jesus Christ for salvation? You know, some unbelievers, they hear a gospel call and they they hear someone says to them, come to Christ and be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll have your sins forgiven. And then they come out and and they ask this question. We all heard it before, I'm sure. They, They say, well, what does it mean to come to Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ? Oh, well, we want to be saved. We just don't know how to. What must I do to be saved? There are thousands of trees were cut down. Countless of books were written in order to answer this simple question. But sadly, many of them are just complicate the matter than simplifying it. And that makes it even that make it even harder to even understand what it means to come to Jesus to be saved. And then they say, can somebody help us? We want to know what must we do to be saved. And here in this passage, in the word of God, this penitent thief, while nailed on the cross, his voice would echo through centuries and speaks to you personally and says, here I am, I'll help you. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to know what it means to come to Jesus for your salvation? Do you want your sins to be forgiven? Follow these three steps. Of course, there have to be three, right? And you will be saved. Very quickly, what are these steps? And we're going to look at each one of them in depth. First, reverence towards God. Second, repentance from sin. Third, reliance in Christ. First, reverence toward God. Not love for God. No. Not adoration toward God or praises that would fill your heart. So that, so that uh, you would be saved. None of these things. All of these things come later after salvation. But first of all, you must fear God. You must fear him. We see the thief on the cross. He said, <clears throat> we read, he says, do you not even what?'" Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Matthew ten twenty eight. Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Proverbs 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Friends, if it is the beginning of, the wisdom, of wisdom, then surely I submit to you, it is the beginning of salvation. What does it mean to fear God? To know His greatness. To sense the presence of a holy God who in His righteousness, He abhors sin. It is to tremble before His divine judgment. To fear God means yet you believe that the one whose hot wrath is far more terrifying than anything else in this world happens to be your judge. You know, unbelievers do not sense the fear of God. Unbelievers who don't come to Christ They're they're totally okay filling their own hearts with selfishness and and pride and all kinds of lustful desires. Yeah, every now and a while they would feel guilty here and there. Yes, it's true. They may be afraid of getting caught sinning by their families at home or their boss at work. But the devil pulled a, a cover over their heads that they can't sense the fact that sinners who fall into the hands of an angry God, righteously angry God, is infinitely worse than being exposed to sinful men who are like them. But not so with this thief. He's awakened to the presence of the Almighty. He, He is now fearing God's divine judgment. And he's taking that first step to come to Christ. Let me ask you a very personal and confronting question. Do you fear God? Do you fear Him? You know, some unbelievers, they deceive themselves and kill any hope of fearing God in them by kind of saying, ah, oh, the Bible is, is written by man, or how do I know what you're saying is true? How do I know if the Bible is true? And what they do is that they dig a big hole in the sand and they try to bury their heads in it by coming up with lousy excuses. Friend, very soon, you will have to look into the face of the almighty judge before he would cast you into the torment of hell. How will all your clever excuses help you out when your judge looks into your every evil thought, every sinful deed you committed? How will it pan out for you when he reads your wicked heart like an open book? How will you wiggle yourself from, from his holy hand when his hot displeasure is burning hot against you? Let me tell you, you will lay helpless, defenceless in his sight with nothing to say other than to curse yourself for all the opportunities you had to come to Christ for salvation and you rejected them. Would to God, dear sinner, would to God that you would not be coward. But be courageous enough and to take this first step towards your salvation and to fear God. To tremble before the presence of whom you have to give an account. You want to be saved? You want to enjoy the forgiveness of sins like this thief on a cross? First step, fear God. The second step, repentance from sin. Now, what does it mean to repent from sin? <clears throat> we read verse 41. And the thief on the cross says, and we indeed are suffering justly. Now, how come you're feeling this way, Mr. Thief on the cross? How come you're feeling that you're suffering justly? When you're nailed to the cross. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But what was it that he was receiving? What was it? The worst kind of punishment ever known to man of his days. Death by crucifixion, right? He believes that the most extreme sentence of condemnation, nothing less, is exactly what he deserves because of his deeds. He publicly admits his guilt. He he confesses his absolute moral failure. Please note what he does not do. He doesn't water down the wickedness of his crime. He he doesn't dilute the right consequences of his sinful actions. He agrees with God that death and condemnation are what he deserves. He doesn't seem to offer any justification for his evil deeds. In other words, he doesn't say, oh, if, if it wasn't for my family. I, would have been, I wouldn't have been a rebel. If it wasn't for the society, I would have been a better man. If it wasn't for the pressure of work. No. He owns all responsibilities for being so defiled. And he's convinced he can't do anything to improve his condition of his heart. Nothing. you he understand this? It's like David when he said to God in Psalm 51 verse 4, Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. It's like the prodigal son uh, when he said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What What does it mean to repent from sin? Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean you change your behavior to be a better person. Nonsense. Now, others would say, Oh, well, of course that's true. If you if you think you change behavior, that's repentance. You kind of identify yourself with Catholicism. That's not true. Oh, yeah, well, what does it mean? They say, ah, oh, you have to cultivate hatreds towards sin. So don't do external works, do internal works. You have to hate the sin that you once loved. Well, that cannot possibly be true. Beloved, don't don't confuse yourselves between how to know that you are saved from how to come to Christ in order for him to save you. Because if it's true, if it was true that if if I hate my sin on my own, apart from Jesus and I can somehow do this before coming to Jesus, then for what reason do I come to Jesus? You see? I ask unbelievers, what is it that is stopping you from coming to Christ to save you? And I say, ah, because I'm very selfish. Or because I'm, I'm not loving my family enough. Or I'm, or I'm too proud. Friend, but what, that is precisely why you need to come to Jesus. Because you are selfish, because you are unloving and proud. If the if the ground on which you come to Jesus to save you is that you are selfless and that that you are humble, then you know what you're saying. You're saying I don't need to come to Jesus to save me. I, I don't need him. Because I can do it on my own. I'm kind of all sorted. Or I can be all sorted. And that's nonsense. To say that I won't come to Jesus until I am a better person is as foolish as a sick patient that would say, I won't go to a doctor because I have cancerous tumor in my chest. What are you going to do about this tumor? When are you going to see a doctor then? Well, when I get rid of my tumor first. How foolish, right? Yet, how similar is this illustration to when the reason unbelievers don't come to Christ is because they have spiritual tumor. And then they say, well... Once I get rid of my bad habits, my sinful desires, then I will go to Jesus. Really? How come? Well, doesn't the Bible say you got to repent? How ridiculous. This is madness. Friend, this is the exact opposite of what repentance is that leads to salvation. Now, this thief. Was like a dead man. He had his right assessment of how deplorable his condition was. And he kind of like placed his hand upon his mouth and he agrees to accept all punishment from the hands of God because of his sin. And this is the meaning of repentance that leads to salvation. What is it? It is to abandon. Any reliance on self for salvation. To relinquish all self-confidence. To forsake all self-righteousness that somehow makes you think you can save yourself by yourself. All the trying to be a good person, to be accepted by God, must go. All pursuit of self-justification must be gone. And you are at war with a holy God. And your weapons of defense is your nonsense of some belief that you are morally good apart from Him. Your repentance is when you lay down these weapons. And accept God's assessment of you. Have you repented? You see, unbelievers who don't come to Christ for salvation, this is how they think. When they do something that is morally good, they've got this inner Pharisee in them who comes to them, he claps for them, applauds them, and whispers in their ears and says, See, you're you're a good bloke after all. I told you. You're a man of dignity. You must be proud of yourself. And even on the other hand, when they fall into sin, very quickly an inner lawyer comes up, rises to their defense and says, oh, no, 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 don't feel too bad about this. Come on. This sin is not this bad. After all, you're much better than other people. There are a lot of other people who are worse than you. You work. You provide for the family. You make your children work hard in order for them to provide for the family. You must be a good man. Forget about this sin that you've committed. Friend, if you want to come to Jesus to be saved, just like this thief on the cross, Come to Christ trembling before Him, fearing God, covering your face with your own shame, throwing yourself before Him on the ground. Repentance is when you confess that you did allow yourself to be corrupted, to be defiled, that you were pleased to be a slave. Of your own sin. That you must admit. That in the stubbornness of your own heart. You refused. For God to rule over your life. And if God wouldn't be merciful to you. Then you deserve any punishment you would receive from him. And you have laid bare your future in his hands. To pronounce Any verdict he chooses because you know that you deserve it without defending yourself. Repentance is simply this. The sinner is convinced that salvation is never found in his works nor in his holy feelings. Nothing to do with you. And you are convinced of that. That's the second step towards your salvation. Well, if salvation is not found in you, where is salvation found? Third step, rely in Christ. Reverence towards God. Have you done that? Have you checked this box? Are you fearing God? Repentance from sin. And thirdly, and finally, reliance in Christ. That is to say, to trust in Christ, to rest in Christ. Once again, the devil has created much damage to this simple step. So many books. With thick volumes were written on his subject and most of them caused more confusion and clarity. And we, can't, we must come back to the simplicity of, of what it means to rely on Jesus Christ. Now what does it mean to rely on him? What does that mean? Um, I have to come to church every week. Certain doctrines that I have to that I have to believe in without believing I cannot be saved? Like limited atonement, hypostatic union. What is the most simplistic meaning of trusting in Jesus, without which no one can be saved? Well, for this, let's let's read the answer from the mouth of that thief on the cross. Because if what he said was good enough for Jesus to save him, then is it not true? It should be good enough for us, right? Now, before we come to this third and final point, I just want to set just a quick background. There are three foundational truths that this thief believed about Jesus. Foundational truth to help him to, to believe in Jesus, okay? Three foundational truths that he believed about Jesus, and we read it in 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 that very paragraph that we before us this morning in verse forty-one. The first first one, we're going to look through them very quickly. The first one is that he believed that Jesus is a perfectly righteous man. He's a righteous man. He says here in verse forty-one: "For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man." Has done what? Nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. He trusted that Jesus, first of all, he trusted that Jesus is man. Look at this. He says, this man. He's not, a, he's not an angel. He's not just, he's a man. But not any kind of man. He has done nothing wrong. Meaning he's sinless man. And if he's a sinless man, it means by implication that he's a perfectly righteous man. He did deeds. None of them were wrong. Then it must be all of them were right. He's a perfectly righteous man. See, when everyone around this thief was condemning Jesus, this thief was commending Jesus. When everyone was looking down on Jesus, now this thief is looking up to Jesus. And when he looked, he found Jesus to be perfectly righteous to behold. Do you believe that Jesus is perfectly righteous, wonderfully faithful? Not just in what he did, but in even what he desired when he lived on earth. The second truth about Jesus, that he is the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior. For thousands of years, God promised to bring one that is To be the savior of the world. One who will bear the sins of many. And so he will deliver sinners from future judgment. And redeem them from their sin. One who would reconcile them with God. We read here. And it says in verse 42 that Thief said. He was saying Jesus remember me. Now, notice he was saying, he didn't just say just that one sentence. He kept on saying it in different ways. Surely he did not just say, Jesus, remember me, Jesus, remember me, Jesus, remember me. But in, in kind of that, that summarizes what he was saying, meaning Jesus, deliver me. Jesus, redeem me. Jesus, even though I'm a great sinner, I believe that you are a great Savior. And again, notice the personal pronoun. It says, remember me. It's me that you remember. Meaning, I take you to be my Messiah, my deliverer, my Savior, Jesus. Uh, All unbelievers, they looked at Jesus at at that time naked, nailed to the tree. And because they relied on their sight, not their faith, they concluded that Jesus couldn't save anybody. And so they rejected Christ as their Messiah. But this thief, his faith looked right through the physical appearance. And he believed that Jesus is his deliverer. And so he asked them to remember him. Righteous man, Savior. And the third truth about Jesus, that he's the king of heaven. The king of heaven. Notice what he says. Jesus, remember me when you come in what? Your kingdom. Personal pronoun. Your kingdom. He believed that Jesus reigns supreme. That he is crowned with authority to forgive sins. That's why he remembers him when, when he goes into his kingdom. But not only did he believe that Jesus is king of heaven, but he knew that Jesus would rise from the dead. How come? Well, he, he, he was just looking at Jesus, being nailed on the cross, dying. And yet he said to him, you will come into your kingdom. So he believed that Jesus will be the resurrected king from the dead. Now, as I said, this is just foundational truth. About Christ. He believed. And because he did believe. That Jesus is a righteous. Savior. Risen king. He didn't care. About what people thought of him. At that time. All that he cared about. Is to have eternal life. And so he threw himself. At the mercy of Christ. To save him. And he cried out. Jesus, remember me. Meaning you are righteous. I believe that. So I believe you have desire to save sinners. Jesus, you are a savior. I believe that meaning I believe you came to save sinners. And you are king, meaning I believe that you have all power necessary to save sinners. And if you had said to this thief at that time, while he was nailed to the cross. Come on, thief, what are you doing? What are you doing? Look, I mean, take a look around you, thief. Everyone is mocking Jesus. He's silent. He's not defending himself. Yet you publicly beg him to save you? You look ridiculous in the eyes of everyone around you. Come on, look at the religious leaders and the Romans. They're strong and powerful. Give him some respect here. You look silly in front of him. What would he say? I don't care what people think of me. Yeah, but nobody's really calling upon Jesus to save him. It's it's kind of only you. Even if no one calls upon Jesus, I will. I will not be pressured by the majority votes. Even if my own family or friends don't trust in Jesus, I will. And so he says to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So what does it mean to rely in Christ to be saved? It means I place all my eggs in this one basket. I place my trust in Jesus alone for my salvation. That is it. Nothing more than that. Everything I said is just to build up to this point. You see, since I abandoned all reliance on myself for salvation, which is what repentance is, and because Jesus is the righteous Savior, the risen King who is both able and desires to save everybody that will come to Him, and I will place my confidence in Him alone to save me. How simple. Is coming to Christ to be saved. How plain. Sadly, so many people sophisticated and complicate this process. Now, I love um, that um, YouTube by Alistair Begg that was circulating around when he preached and in uh, in one of his sermons and he commented on that thief when he went into heaven and uh for the first time when that thief went into heaven and he met an angel there and I like I like to quote to you what Alistair Begg said just to show you the simplicity of the gospel that saves and then we'll wrap it up all right an angel saw him coming in into heaven and he says, Well, you made it you you made it how did you make it and the thief says I don't know what what do you mean you don't know and the thief repeats it again he says, I don't know just just one second let me get my supervisor to see you and then a supervisor angel comes in and he says, Son, um, there are just a few questions that we, we're gonna have to ask you. Um, first of all, are you clear with um on the doctrine of justification by faith? And see if we reply, he says, I've never heard of it in my life. What? Well, what about what about the doctrine of the inerrancy of the scripture and, and all that? Have, have, where do you stand with? And the thief is just staring at him. And eventually in frustration, the angel asked, well, on what basis are you here? Then he said, well, the man in the middle cross said I can come. (laughs) It's just as simple as that. How simple. That's not overcomplicated. What is it that saves you? Is it, it's not your your good works? We know that. But nor is it your holy feelings towards God. What saves you is not you coming to church or reading the Bible. In fact, it is not even your repentance or faith that saves you. In fact, I will go further and say it's not even what that saves you. It is who that saves you. It is Christ and Christ alone that saves you. Let me summarize it for you. All that repentance is, if you think about it carefully, is a call for you to look away from yourself. And all that faith is, is to look upon Christ alone for your salvation. That's all it is. That's all it is. Why? Acts 4.12, there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven. That has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's wrap it up. You want to meet your creator face to face without a savior to defend you? And in his hot, righteous indignation, you would be cast into eternal torment? Very easy. Very easy. Listen to the world. Look into yourself for a hero, for a savior. Keep saying to yourself, hey, I'm good the way I am. Hug yourself. Applaud yourself. Clap for yourself when you do good works. And just say to yourself, I don't need Christ, the righteous, majestic king to save me. Continue to lie and deceive yourselves all the way to hell. And you will have the demons behind the scene clapping for you. May God have mercy upon your soul. If that's the path you choose to take. Do you want to come out clean before God? Do you want to be saved? Do you want your sins to be forgiven? Be at peace with God. And enjoy that peace and have that power to overcome sin in your life. Do you want to have all the blessings of Christ and even Christ himself for you? It's simple. It's a low-hanging fruit. Grab it and grab it now. What is it? Just call upon the name of Jesus and you shall be saved. Abandon. Forsake. Use whatever word you want. Your reliance on yourself for your salvation. Don't look into yourself for salvation. Look outside of yourself. And the second, rely on Christ alone for your salvation. Rest on Him, His personhood, what He did, how He desires to say. Rely on Him. That's all. Look upon Him. Don't look outside of, don't look inside of yourself, look outside upon Christ and say to him, Save me. <laughs> Save me, Jesus. That's all. How come? Yeah, an unbeliever would say, I can't be that simple. How can it be this simple? Well, I'll tell you how. It is that simple. Why is it that simple? Because Jesus has done all the hard work. When he lived all these years on earth and then died on the cross, he made it so simple because he did all the work to bear the sins of his people and to have all the wrath of God to be poured upon him. Salvation is found in Christ alone. Because he's the one that satisfied the wrath of God. Call upon him and he will save you. He will save you. But my sins are too many. And they're so intense. I've been so stubborn. So was the thief on the cross. And yet he called upon Jesus and Jesus saved him. But I rejected Christ all my life. Oh, how many times I heard the gospel call to come to Jesus and be saved. And I rejected it. My heart is getting harder and harder. Even now I'm sitting and I look down on the floor because of shame. I want to tell you, Jesus' love is so much greater than the amount of rejection. You had. And he today extends this offer of salvation to you. Despite your rejection. Oh, but, but I don't know how to pray. I don't love him. I don't love reading his word. I find it such a big burden to talk to any believer about the things of God. Friend, this is why you come to Him. He will work in you. He will change you from the inside out. He promised to give you the power necessary for you to love Him and to grow in enjoying Him and obeying Him. He will do all that. You just come to Him. And when you come to him, have this big, massive, weighty pile of your sins on your shoulders. Don't come to him pretending that you're good. Come to him as messy as you are and lay at his feet all your sins and say, it's over. You said it's finished, then I say it's over. Hand over your stubbornness to him your pride, your lust. He will sort you out, trust me. He will forgive you. He will bring you into fellowship with him and he will cause you to enjoy him for eternity. May you understand the message of the cross and the simplicity and how plain it is. And we never, ever complicate it. Jesus is extending his offer of salvation to you. Do not reject it. Come to him now. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you, Lord. You made it so simple for us. Because tr- Jesus chose in his love to bear the most painful torture and to endure the torment of all of hell in a, in a three-hour span. Father, how can we be so thankful to you that you sacrificed your son So that we would believe. Oh how we beg you Lord. How we beg you. That people in this room. Would come to saving faith. That they would take these three steps. Fearing you. Abandoning their pursuit. To rely on on themselves. To lay down their weapons. Of defense. Before you, Almighty God. And that they would run and hide in Jesus' wounds from the wrath to come. So that they would be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.